This is Two Guys in the Bible, a conversation on theology, culture, and the Word of God. My name is Eric Leupold, and I'm joined this morning, as always, with my brother, Dylan Keniston. Good morning, Dylan. How are you doing? Good morning, Eric. I'm doing well, brother. How are you? Doing great. This fine early morning. It is early, yes. With tea and coffee. Yes. I was up at four. <laughs> uh, which, which is like, you know, I'm usually up at like five or four between four thirty and five. So it wasn't that, that bad, but yeah, this is like a little bit earlier than normal. Well, you know, we got the tea, we got a little caffeine. So praise the Lord. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that should hopefully help us wake us, wake us up and, uh, get a lively discussion going. Um, for those of you just tuning in, uh, this week we'll be talking about, uh, a gun control, a very, a very weighty topic, a very, uh, important topic, uh, related to what we've been talking about the past couple weeks, uh, the, the, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about human rights, the origin of human rights, and then the, our last recording was about the, the right to life and, uh, and the death penalty and things of that nature. So this is kind of uh, related to those topics, talking about life, talking about uh, the taking of life, uh, when it's even, if it's allowable, when it's allowable, what's the context. And so today, obviously, a very much related issue is that of Gun control, uh, whether it's you know, is it okay for us to own weapons as Christians to to utilize weapons in self-defense? How does that relate to the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? So we're going to be looking at that topic uh, in both um, a Christian context and then also in in the more specific American context with regards to the Constitution. It would be a kind of a different conversation if we were living in a country where it was explicitly <clears throat> excuse me, explicitly like against the Constitution for any citizen to have per personal firearms. That would be a whole different conversation regarding the relationship between the Christian and the state um, and, and whether or not it's, you know, we should be following unjust laws or laws that we think might be unjust. But that being said, before we dive into the topic, I do want to point out that we are a listener-supported podcast. We really do appreciate all you out there who are supporting us on a regular basis. It definitely helps to keep the lights on. Um, and if you want to look at uh, our previous episodes or, or want to want to support us, just uh, head to our website, which is twoguysinabible.org. That's the number two twoguysinabible.org. So uh, with that, though, I want to uh, kind of put Dylan in the hot seat. He'll be leading us on the discussion this morning. And the opening question really is, um, how, as Christians, we should be approaching uh, the topic of guns? You know, where should our thinking be? Where, how should we even begin with that topic? What do you think? Yeah, so thank you for that intro. Like, what, okay, so what I intend to lay out today is kind of an opening shot at some kind of, you know, biblical response to disagreements over guns. And I say opening shot, you know, no pun intended, because it's, it's just, <laughs> it's a massively complex issue for anyone who's given it more than a passing partisan thought. Right, because it's it's tied to questions about hermeneutics, violence, and sphere sovereignty and self defense, and there's just no way we're going to cover all that in one episode. And we've done past episodes on some of the related issues, so I would refer listeners back to those. But all, I guess all I ask from listeners today is that you know this is <laughs> this is a topic where I'm inevitably going to step on some toes. So, and and look, if if I step on yours, I just ask be patient because I'm going to step on somebody else's toes soon after. Sir, I equal step opportunity on yours. toe stepper. Equal opportunity toe stepper honor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also a complex issue because emotions run high, right? So like some people love guns, some people hate guns. There's, there's not a ton in between, mm -hmm. and it's easy to understand why. So like on the negative side, out of 47 weeks so far this year, 
there have been 45 school shootings. Mm -hmm. and, like, that is a grave tragedy. Like, what used to issue in shock and horror has been, you know, on average in 2019, an almost weekly occurrence. So the question isn't if there will be another shooting, but when. Yeah. And, like, this really hit close to home earlier this year when an Orthodox Presbyterian church member opened fire on a synagogue in California. And from what we could tell, the shooter had a solid theology of salvation. He had been catechized. I mean, you know, it's the OPC. I mean, look, I'm a Baptist, and I love my Baptist brethren and heritage, but OPC ministers are like theological Navy SEALs, you know? So, like, that that would happen there, like, that's yeah. that's sobering, like, that it, it's that it could happen there. Mm -hmm. And the shooting is horrific enough. It's just, it's more jarring when the shooter's one of your own. So, and, and in our American context, the partisan outcries you never take long, you know, from the left or the right, you know, the, the day of the tragedy, the left will say, you know, see, this is why we need more gun control. And usually as fast, the right will say, see, this is why gun-free zones are so dangerous. You know, like violent crime used to bring us together. Like the fact that instead we clamor for political solutions, just a sign of how bad things are. Like why turn to government first, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not saying there will never be partisanship or that there's nothing we can do, but like when the chips are down, to whom do we turn? Like, yeah. are we able to set aside partisanship for long enough to love those with whom we disagree in the midst of tragedy rather than demonizing them? Mm. You know, it's just something to think about before posting that political rant on social media, like right after a shooting. Yeah, like, not a good timely thing. Like hold your tongue. Yeah. You know, or in this case, your keyboard and just like let people grieve. And yeah. love them and lean into them. If, if you're local, cook them meals. It's not, it's not the time for finger pointing. Mm -hmm. So that's the negative side of this issue. On the positive side, there's lots of examples of law-abiding, gun-carrying <clears throat> citizens saving lives. So in Sterling Heights, Michigan, in late 2017, there was a woman who was walking her dog in the middle of the night. She was grabbed by a young man who tried to pull her towards him. There was a nearby van that he had come from. And during the struggle, she saw the man was holding a shiny object, kind of looked like a knife, and she, it just so happened, had a concealed weapons license and happened to be carrying. So she pulled her gun on the man and pointed it at him and said, I do not want to kill you. And the man was frightened and ran. And even more recently, September of this year, a Houston woman faced a, a number of young men who tried to rob her, and she revealed her gun, and the men fled. And back in 2007, there was an armed attacker who opened fire on people gathered at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, and the shooter killed two teenagers in the parking lot and then moved towards the building where 700 more people were gathered. Wow. And he was stopped by a church security team member, uh, Gianna Assam, who shot him with her concealed handgun. Mm -hmm. So, like, all I'm saying here is there's stories on both sides, and emotions run high because no matter what you say, somebody could hear you and think, well, if what you wanted were implemented, I might not be alive today, right? So that's why I was just saying we want to tread lightly. That's and, true. You know, among Christians, you can see why we're divided on the issue. On the one hand, we want Christ's peaceable kingdom. Guns are instruments of violence, and so their restriction is seen as a way to engender, you know, peace and mercy and love to seek the good of the city where God has placed us. And on the other hand, we Christians want justice to remediate injustice. And in a moment when police officers might not be available, a gun can be a way to protect against assailants and, you know, ultimately against tyranny. So we have mercy and punishment, love and justice, and both are biblical themes apparently in tension. Right? So we hear for love and mercy, you know, First Peter writes to Christians facing persecution. He says, endure sorrows when suffering unjustly, 2.19. Do not repay evil for evil, 3.9. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, 4.19. 
And Jesus says similar things. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. That's you know, Luke 21. You know, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's Matthew 10. And all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Matthew 26. Mm-hmm. So lots and lots and lots of passages that evidence kind of love and mercy and forbearance of violence through a willingness to endure unjust suffering. On the other but we've also got passages on punishment and justice. Jesus also says, let the one who has no, no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Luke 22, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Matthew 24. And then there's several Old Testament passages, which have, you know, no less have the voice of our Lord behind them. And so this apparent tension between, you know, mercy and punishment and love and justice, like, where does that lead us? To the cross precisely where these themes kiss. So like all that to say, this is, a, this is a topic where I'd want to give some flexibility, right? Some grace for Christians to charitably disagree. So I'm going to lay out my perspective, mm-hmm. but I'm teachable from scripture. And I understand that the view against what I'm going to lay out is historically grounded, even though at the end of the day, scripturally, I would judge it to be mistaken. But there's, there's brothers and sisters with whom I disagree on the issue, but like deeply respect and love. Like I don't question their bravery mm-hmm. or their dedication to the Lord or their dedication to Scripture's authority. So yeah, yeah, it's I want to leave some flexibility. No, I, that may, no, I appreciate you you laying that out and uh, you know giving that uh, understanding um, because you're right. It's a it's a very it's a sensitive topic and uh, we don't want to we don't want to jump into it too uh, rashly or or be too black and white and say, well, anyone who doesn't agree with this p- particular position, uh, you know, then kind of ignore them and, and not really. They don't care about them. the Bible. Yeah, they're in sin. Really, you know, yeah. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Because I think there's Christians on both sides that they genuinely want to love their neighbor yeah. and they're trying to figure out exactly what does that look like? What does that mean? So, okay, given that disagreement or the, the, the possibility of great disagreement amongst Christians, you know, are we even able to speak to something like that? Is that a question? Should we even bother talking about that particular topic as Bible-believing Christians? Yes, uh, and I, th- I think yes for at least three reasons. So number one, the Bible deals with justice, right? And justice occasionally expresses itself in violence, including violence mm-hmm. and self-defense. So, you know, we'll turn to some passages and see that, you know, Scripture that speaks to today's topic a bit on that. And then number two, the, the Bible deals with the nature of human beings, right? Sometimes disagreements over anthropology undergird disagreements over firearms. You know, but the Bible says human beings are fallen and live in a fallen world that's subject to violence and war and conflict and all kinds of strife. And what's at the center of all evil is sin. And number three, the Bible deals with violence and self-defense. You know, we'll look at some passages that temper this with mercy and set limits on who can execute violence and contexts in which self-defense might be appropriate. But it's not as if the Bible has this, you know, myopic kind of Pollyannish view that pops from cheerful thought to cheerful thought. Like mm-hmm. the Bible is not naive about evil in the world, yeah. <laughs> and it and it gives parameters for how to think through some of these issues. So, you know, all that said, yes, all that said, I still would insist on generous space for disagreement among Christians. Yeah. But I do think it's appropriate for us to speak to the issues, mainly because the Bible speaks to these issues. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah and so, as you approach the topic, as we approach the topic. What would be some of the underlying principles that we should um, start out with or come to the table with as we touch on that topic? Yeah, so I, I give you one. So yeah, I think we should start with it, at least like 
often um, when disagreements over firearms come up between Christians, there's very different assumptions operating, right? And I, and I, I know this can be contentious. So, you know, if a listener disagrees, I would, I would say, you know, let's start here first because <laughs> things kind of, kind of build on themselves. Um, it, it is, a, you know, this is an important hermeneutical principle, it, and it's this, right? Just because a passage is in the Old Testament doesn't mean it doesn't count. <laughs> like, right, so, so here's the thing. Every, every theological heritage, every denomination has certain errors that it's more prone to, you know, and I won't suggest what the errors are that other denominations risk making, you know, those brothers and sisters can police their own doctrinal borders. But one danger for us Baptists is, you know, we sometimes bypass Old Testament passages because of how we put our Bibles together. You know, we rightly hold to the newness of the new covenant. And one way this can manifest in the extreme is to completely ignore Old Testament passages. You know, we tend to say, well, you know, that was then, this is now, that was for Israel in that unique dispensation. But, you know, Christians today ought to take our moral cues from the New Testament. After all, that's where the law of Christ is found, you know, etc. And like, I get it. Right? <laughs> I do. And, and like, during my time studying alongside Presbyterian brothers and sisters, believe me, I insisted on exactly the same. But, but, and, and it's a big but, it, it is mission critical that we avoid, you know, avoid Marcion's error of just throwing out the Old Testament. The Old Testament, like, it points us to Christ. The law convicts us of sin. It informs the civil order. It instructs believers today in what the good works are that God has planned for us, Ephesians 2.10. You know, the Old Testament plants gospel seeds that flourish into a full-grown tree in the New Covenant. It's an illustration, I think, from Gerhardus Voss, you know, the, the seed to tree. And, and I think it's a good one. You know, the seed contains the tree, and the voice of the Old Testament is no less divine than that of the New. The Old Testament is entirely Christocentric. So for all the kinks that admittedly need to be worked out in the particulars, the general rule of thumb is if the New Testament doesn't overturn some principle from the Old Testament, then we human beings shouldn't take the prerogative of God upon ourselves and assume, well, it's just not applicable anymore because that was then and this is now. Yeah. Well, and would would this be, would it be fair to say as well also that um, we're also talking about how God's law relates to us as Christians today and that, um, yes, while certain laws have have changed or been fulfilled in some sense, like the sacrificial laws, Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Um, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want to suggest that the law has been abolished because even right. Jesus himself says he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, so when we look at any law in the old Testament, we need to look at it at not, not as if it's been destroyed or abolished, but as if, okay, what does that law, how does that law apply now that Christ has come? So you, you know, you can kind of, and that leads you to let's you know let's say the sacrificial laws being done away with per se not really done away with they were just fulfilled in Christ there's no there's no need to sacrifice animals anymore because we have the perfect sacrifice so it's been fulfilled in that regard yes. so i mean so is that one that's one thing we should keep in mind as well you'd say yeah i would agree i mean okay. we we have a new covenant hermeneutical control where if if it's not overturned in the new the principle underlying the old generally I would say applies. So like one example we've mm -hmm. cited before is not very contentious. That's why we cite it often is parapets around our roofs from Deuteronomy 22 verse eight. So like Christians might not have parapets around our roofs today. So at the level of application, there's change, but we should, you know, have fences around our pools, handrails mm -hmm. on our stairs and so on. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the principle applies even when the application has, has modernized. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so at this point, right, 
we've we've surveyed the issue, we've looked at why we're addressing the issue, and we've given kind of an underlying principle for thinking about the issue. I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> well, you've been saying a lot of things. I, I know, but like all of this has been all of this is prologue. It's one right? big like, caveat. It's a one big caveat because it's <laughs> it's it's a touchy subject, and I, I just want to get as many presuppositions up front as possible before diving in. And you know, I give you I give you two more real quick. I want to make clear what I will and will not be doing as we unpack this mm -hmm. issue. I will not be addressing the NRA or any other gun lobbying organization. I'm not a member of the NRA or anything similar. I have no qualms about the NRA. I'm totally bypassing anything and everything about the NRA. So like if a listener hears this and thinks, ah, oh, but there's, you know, all these terrible things that gun lobbying organizations have done, you know, they might or might, might not be right. I, I'm just ignoring that for the time yeah. being. And I will also not be addressing data around guns and gun use, not because data isn't important. It's massively important that a Christian approach to any issue be scientific as well as biblical. I'm skipping it because, you know, quite frankly, we, we lack good synthesis of the data we have. And really, like, having good data is something people, I think, on all sides of the issue, at least in principle, should agree on. Like, we want the facts. We want the truth. Yeah, and that's difficult because... I mean, there's so much data. First of all, the, and the amount of data there is, it would take a long, long time to work through all of it. But then all, all facts are interpreted facts. Like all data is interpreted. And um, as Christians, even though data is important, data tells you what things are or how things are right now or maybe how things were. They don't re it doesn't really tell you how things ought to be. And... I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to make light of gun control data, but, you know, in a sense, I mean, data does not really over, override God's laws and commands. I mean, the, the world had really good data before the flood of Noah, like it had never rained before. Exactly. No. So, so, I mean, when Noah's, <laughs> when Noah's you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro proclaiming the repent and believe, right. the world's like... But the data, man. That's so true. No, that that's exactly right. I mean, and yes, like certainly God's truth reigns supreme in Scripture. We we don't prefer a sin obscured yeah. version of the same thing, right? If God says it, it's true, no matter what our puny human minds contrive. And and to your point, of course, all facts are interpreted facts. That's absolutely right. And in fact, that's part of the reason why I'm not going to go much of a deep dive on it here. Like, but. Insofar as we can discover truths about creation through observation and, and data, math and science, language, et cetera, these are godly pursuits. And I, I, I mean, I know we agree there. But so part of the issue with, with gathering data on guns is that you'll inevitably have people who say, yeah, but, you know, I don't want the state or some pollster knowing about my guns. Right. There's there's this deep concern for privacy and a distrust generally in organizations that collect that kind of data. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say, like, in principle, it's something we should agree on. There's no real upside to ignorance. And in principle, you could conduct surveys that keep responses anonymous. But in practice, right, the stakes are high enough that that might be hard to do, or at least hard to trust surveys that promise that's anonymity. Yeah. Now, and like, look, I'm sure there's some listeners out there that are pulling out their hair. You know, if I say we lack good data, you know, don't we have endless studies from the FBI and the CDC and, and others gathered over the last several decades? They're all government organizations. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's all kinds <laughs> of statistics that, that, are, that just permeate discussions on firearms, right? So why not avail ourselves of the data that's available? And the problem with looking at stats about, you know, air quotes, gun control which is a hopelessly large rubric, is it's not so much that there's not enough data, but that there's so much data from variant yeah. sources that just aren't well integrated. Sure. It gets hard to draw helpful conclusions. So like uh, in January 2013, 
this was in response to, you know, the tragic shooting at Sandy Hook. Then President Obama issued a handful of executive orders directing federal agencies to per pursue a deeper understanding of gun acquisition and ownership and use. Just a whole slew of initiatives to basically say, we need to know more. And, you know, to what extent is this a public health burden in need of mitigation? And, and given the connection to quote-unquote public health, mm -hmm. the Center for Disease Control and Prevention got involved. You know, there was some, there was some pushback Which about the... Which is interesting. The, yeah, it's there was like, pushback about, about the CDC getting involved in the first place. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll look past that for well, now. So, sin's a disease. Right. <laughs> so the CDC collaborated with the issue, the, the, the Institute of Medicine and the National Research Council, and these groups convened a committee, and their goal was to set an agenda for further research. Basically, you know, if you had a magic wand and could wave it to answer any questions you felt were necessary about the topic of firearms in America, Mm -hmm. You know, what questions would you ask? So later that year, they came out with an article titled Priorities for Research to Reduce the Threat of Firearm Violence. Standard government title. Very long. <laughs> Very long. It, much like my my, my podcast uh, lead, leadership, right? <laughs> but, but the point is, it, it's, it's a free article, and, and you can find it online. And there, you know, they summarize kind of where we're at. Basically, what it boils down to, they say, is this. Uh, the research is conflicted. <laughs> Some studies say X, others yeah. say Y. And it's not just a matter of better data, because even when you get better data, methodologies of interpretation are not widely agreed upon. That's, you know, to the point you raised earlier, mm -hmm. every fact is an interpreted fact, you know, and some gun safety technology like smart guns, which can only be discharged by an authorized user. That's still relatively new and its impact needs to be better understood by mm -hmm. researchers. So all that to say, I'm going to bypass <laughs> a deep dive mm -hmm. into stats because the data seems mixed. And, you know, I might bring up a few things here and there, but I just want to say, if I, like, I wouldn't rest my case on gun control on any of the data points I'd cite, you know, positively or negatively. I just, we would rest it on God's word. Exactly. No, that's a good point. So, I mean, all right, so let's do that then. Let's, let's, let's use God's word and let's start with that. I mean, where, where would you begin uh, in scripture, passages, uh, principles, things like that? Yeah. So the Bible grants human beings the right to self-defense. So, okay couple of passages. Um, Exodus 22 verse 2 okay. says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So in other words, in restricted circumstances, the law exonerates a person for killing an intruder when he wishes to protect his household. Now, and that, that passage also has some more caveats, like if the yeah, sun rises exactly. on him, there that, is blood guilt. Exactly. That's why I say in restricted circumstances, because mm -hmm. to your point, the very next verse oh, yeah. seems to limit the legitimacy of, of lethal uh, intervention. Verse 3 says, if the sun rises on him, like you said, that it, you know, the, the one who killed in self-defense, the sun rises on him, there will be blood guilt. And interpreters debate the meaning <clears throat> of the sun rising in this situation, but whatever that means, the context in which killing in defense of one's home is limited. But nevertheless, the text does promote a right to self-defense mm -hmm. in some context. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where that hermeneutical rule comes in handy that we talked about earlier, because some here would say, well, you can't just take an Old Testament passage like Exodus 22, 2, and import it into the New Covenant context. You mean like love your neighbor as yourself? <laughs> and the answer is yes, <laughs> but, right? Yeah. The principle underlying the law is still applicable today, even if, you know, if the principle of self-defense and one's home isn't overturned in the new covenant and we have good reason to think it's not there's passages that speak to something similar we don't get to take the prerogative of god and just say well that doesn't apply anymore yeah i, I would and certainly and and i i mentioned my kind of uh hopefully snide comment that only because <laughs> um i think a lot of people forget like i, I get into discussions with people 
It's like, oh, we're supposed to love God, love our neighbor, and and you know, not worry about this. That's the New Testament. And it's like, well, he's quoting from Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy. I mean, Deuteronomy has love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and Leviticus says love your neighbor as yourself. So, I mean, Jesus is drawing from, he's explicitly drawing from the Old Testament law, and he's bringing it today. Right, so. and, and, and he's expositing a fuller understanding of the law. Yeah. Right? It kind of been there all along. Um, you know, don't hate because it leads to murder. You know, but the prohibition for murder had, you know, hate baked into it even back then, but it was just not articulated that That's way. That's true. That's right? true. So, all right, likewise, another passage, you know, Judges 15. Samson kills a thousand Philistines. Yeah, but he and, didn't use guns. But he uses a, a, a donkey's jawbone, right, in, in self-defense. So at this point, no, just, yeah. just saying self-defense yeah, no, is legit, right? And in this case, we do have a, we do have a weapon that, that Samson used. So we'll come to some other passages there too. Mm-hmm. But yes, that's, that's true. He didn't have a gun. We'll, we'll come back to that point. Um, in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks favorably of a man who stays home to defend his house against a burglar. In Luke 11, verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own court, his goods are at peace. So these I take to be some passages that speak directly at least to the idea of self-defense. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even beyond Scripture, the same has been held true in the heritage of American thought. We'll come back to the Second Amendment, but, Mm -hmm. you know, John Locke, among others— called the right to self-defense the most fundamental of all rights because it ties back to the right of integrity over one's own body. You know, you have a right not to be unlawfully harmed, not to be raped, not to be murdered. You have a right to life. You can't exercise your right to life if it's unlawfully taken from you. So, you know, there's there's a handful of, of mm-hmm. streams mm-hmm. of thought on this. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to self-defense, there's also a number of passages that speak to the rights of saints to bear arms. So in Nehemiah 4, verse 13 and following, Nehemiah arms people to defend their families and their homes. Is that when he's trying to build the wall? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he stations With the sword them. in one hand and the and the And they're building in the other. Exactly, yes. Bricks in one hand, sword in the other. In, in Luke 22, verse 36, and I want to park on this verse just for a couple of minutes. It's going to be an important one, yeah. Yeah. Jesus exhorts his followers to buy swords. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, with this verse in particular, there's pushback on using this as kind of a text to defend Christians bearing arms. And the pushback is that Jesus was speaking of swords here metaphorically. And many God-fearing, Bible-loving commentators hold that view. So Matthew Henry said of this verse, quote, Jesus knew these would be perilous times, so the disciples would need the sword of the Spirit. So also John Calvin, quote, It's shameful that the disciples, after just having been told about bearing the cross, now imagine they must fight with swords of iron. So on this view, when Jesus says, it is enough, in verse 38, he's taken to mean something like, enough of this talk about swords, right? He's dismissing the very notion of bringing swords. Now, all right, that's that's one view. Now, and, and you can there's a lot of respectable commentators who hold that view. I find that view hard to square with the rest of verse 36 because Jesus says, "Sell your cloak and buy a sword." Well, first of all, does one buy the sword of the Spirit? 
No, because I think a magician tried to do that later on and got rebuked for that. <laughs> exactly. And another issue, you know, the disciples say in verse 38, look, Lord, here are two swords. So presumably the swords didn't just appear out of nowhere, right? They were, they were handy when the they disciples found them. They must have both been them. Peter's. <laughs> no. Like the most apparent reading of the text is that they'd been traveling with these two swords already. And Jesus wasn't surprised that they actually produced two swords. Like he didn't rebuke them or, you know like was it a gas that like oh oh my how is it possible you guys have two swords and I, you know yeah. exactly so. exactly and 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 look even more to the point it's argued you know jesus must have been speaking metaphorically in luke 22 verse 36 <laughs> because not long after this talk about swords peter draws a sword against malchus and that's when jesus famously said those who take the sword die by the sword in matthew 26 52 and now now that saying those who take the sword die by the sword is a proverb it's it's not a formulaic guarantee, right? It's a, it's a general truth. Now, John Piper explains it this way. He says, quote, The mindset that plans to save its life by killing is not inviting the protection of God, but the violence of man, end quote. Like, that's Dr. Piper's explanation of Matthew 26, 52. Um, and I really want I, I love Dr. Piper, and I and I, he's a, boy, such a good expositor of, of God's word. I really want to agree with that interpretation, but I would want to adjust it just a little bit because Peter wasn't trying to defend Jesus's life like in a vacuum, right? He he was getting in the way of Jesus's purpose, and his purpose was to come to the world and die for the forgiveness of sins. So, like, I know it's a little presumptuous, but I, I think interpreting Matthew twenty six fifty two might be something closer to to this, if I were going to reframe Dr. Piper's interpretation, the mindset that plans to spread the gospel to defend the name of Christ by killing is not inviting the protection of God, but the violence of man. Because remember, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. And that's what I think Peter gets wrong when he strikes Malchus. He's, he still has an earthly Messiah in mind. Peter was jumping the gun, you know, or the sword, you know, no pun intended. And, mm. and the key here is, let's not make the same mistake Peter made in attacking Malchus. None of anything I've said means Christ's kingdom is spread by carrying the sword any more than it's spread by carrying money bags and knapsacks yeah. also found in Luke twenty two thirty six. 36. We're like, we're not to be this militia of preachers, you know, Bible in one hand, revolver in the other. <laughs> That's an interesting picture. Yeah. And, and another thing, you know, notice this, notice the restraint in armament from Jesus. You know, the disciples said, Lord, here are two swords. Jesus doesn't say, well, sheesh boys, you know, load up, buy three more, get the extra long get ones with, ballista. you know, blades coming out the sides. He said, Two is enough. That's plenty. They didn't need more. There's no fetishing of weapons or the violence they beget. It's it's sober. It's tempered. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that's fair enough so far. But you have to—we do have to spend some time in the, the, the passage that's going to come up in any of these conversations is the passage regarding turning the other cheek, hmm. which occurs, you know, uh, at least twice in the Gospels. Um, so you want to— you want to kind of dive into that passage and address that for a little bit? Yeah, it's it's an important one. I mean, you're exactly right, right? Turning the other cheek is often used in in a way to to, you know, discuss uh non-retaliation of all kinds, including, you know, uh, self-defense with firearms. And and the verse looms large and, it, and like it's true, I think that the general thrust of the New Testament is seems to be, you know, not returning evil for evil 
but overcome evil with good, to paraphrase Paul in Romans 12. You know, we're, we're pushed towards being wronged over being violent. Mm-hmm. And so the verse about turning the other cheek is found in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5, 38 to yeah, 39. Yeah, look at that. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So you, you have the lex talionis, right? The law of retaliation. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And the goal of the lex talionis was to, of course, to, to limit retaliation. So the retaliation must be commensurate with the offense. So if someone stole your chickens, you wouldn't go murder their family. The same principle applies in Christian just war theory. If someone bombs a building, you don't go nuke their entire nation to oblivion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in practice, you see, it, it became about vengeance over personal offense. And and that's evident from the situation Jesus cites. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And most commentators agree. I mean, you can't say that very often, you know, like most commentators agree. They hardly agree about anything. But most agree. <laughs> What's going on here is a backhanded mm-hmm. slap. Mm-hmm. And, and most people then, as now, were right-handed. So, you know, just imagine if you're facing someone and slapping them on the right cheek, you're using the back of your hand. So what's at issue here is is personal insult. Yeah, and it seems like also the context, I mean, a lot of times Jesus would quote uh, from the Old Testament. I mean, he's quoting here eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which is a legitimate Old Testament passage regarding the law. Uh, And he's applying it to now, and he's kind of revealing an abuse that's been taking place amongst the people, particularly the the Pharisees and, and the Jewish leaders. And that is that they would be quoting that Old Testament passage to justify personal vengeance against insults, right? So, uh, but that's not what the original intent of that Old Testament passage was. It was meant to uh, speak to the justice system of the nation of Israel. Um, And he he does that, he does that in other places as well, um, looking at other passages. But I think that's the primary issue here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, now Now, what makes this so compelling towards pacifism mm-hmm. isn't just this verse, right? Because the argument goes, the verse, this verse is nestled into an entire framework of New Testament passages that seem to encourage being wronged over being violent for Christ's sake. So, you know, I mentioned some verses earlier from 1 Peter, you know, endure sorrows when suffering unjustly, 2.19. Do not repay evil for evil, 3.9. But but others as well, you know, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, uh, 1 Peter 4.12-13. So, so, like, also Jesus says, life-threatening, dangerous situations are opportunities to bear witness, Luke 21.13. Mm-hmm. Like, in the book of Acts, you know, reports Saul executing Christians. And there's no report that the Christians Saul was executing tried to defend themselves. They were like lambs led to slaughter for Christ's sake. And we sing in Luther's hymns, you know, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because God is our mighty fortress. We don't fear those who can kill the body. So, all right, that can be a compelling case. Mm -hmm. The problem is this. It's it, the pacifist roots here are taking one stream of biblical thought and absolutizing it over other streams of biblical thought. So just think of all of the biblical passages where, where Scripture specifically enjoins various spheres not to turn the other cheek, right? So for one, the state doesn't turn the other cheek. Yeah. 
you know, uh, Paul says, if you do wrong, be afraid for the one in authority does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Mm -hmm. Romans 13, four, we'll come back to Romans 13. Mm -hmm. You know, business doesn't turn the other cheek. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anything, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Like, that's not mercy. That's not, oh, you were late to the job for the fifth time this week. No big deal. Here's a paycheck. Like, no, nah, like, if you won't work, you won't eat. That's justice. You, you can't run a business without that. Mm -hmm. The family doesn't turn the other cheek. So in Ephesians 6, verse 4, fathers, bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord. Like, if you're a parent you and your kid acts 10 kinds of crazy, and time after time you just turn the other cheek, and you never discipline the child, you will spoil the child. Oh, like if the child were to insult you. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah, I see what you're saying there. And and the church doesn't turn the other cheek. You think about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 and elsewhere. So again and again and again, the issue is you can't absolutize turning the other cheek you can't absolutize non-retaliation without making shipwreck of other things, Scripture says. There's limits to mercy. And at some point, mercy and justice collide. We can only, like, we have to look to Christ for the synthesis. And in the meantime, we try to operate with as much wisdom as possible in, in each situation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, I guess what I'm saying is there's mystery, right? There's there's God's sovereignty and human responsibility. There's imminence and transcendence. There's three persons and one God. There's humanity and divine natures in Christ. There's mercy and there's justice. Like, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Look, no, that's back, fair. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. So back to turning the other cheek, right? The common thread I think we find in all these passages seems to be this. Where the thing at issue is personal offense or personal safety for the gospel's sake. In these cases, Christians are to endure and not exact vengeance or violence. Now, I, 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 I like what you did there to try to differentiate between two things because uh, in my mind, I think of it that way as well. Like, you know, there's a difference between being persecuted for the sake and name of Christ than being robbed in the back alley. Like, those are those are two different things um, in that regard. You know, someone coming into my home to do violence, not yes. because we're Christians, but, you know, just to, maybe they're, they're on drugs, or they're trying to, you know, you know, take the children, you know, human trafficking, whatever the case may be, um, or just robbing. Um, yeah, that, that's a, a whole different story than, than someone coming up to you, whether it's the government or whether it's, uh, another person saying, I'm doing this, in a sense they're saying, I'm doing this because you're a Christian. Right. That's a different story yes. than I'm going to hurt your family. Exactly. And and that is where I think there is a, a right biblical category for persevering under, under unjust violence mm -hmm. from a Christian. But now, here's the but. <laughs> um, what if it's not personal, right? Like, in other, what's the best way to love our neighbor when they're being attacked? Like, mm. violence can be an exercise in love of neighbor. So even if you or I might be willing to die and not kill for Christ's sake, others may not be, and include, including other potential victims. Mm -hmm. So now, like, come back to the 2007 shooting at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. You know, the shooter killed two teenagers in the parking lot and was on his way towards 700 more. He was stopped by, you know, the, the church um, uh, the security, security, security teams, guards, yeah, Gian yeah, Assam, who shot him. And the question is, would Miss Assam have been more Christ-like to lay down her gun and let that man advance? And I, yeah. and I think from the texts so. we've raised so far, the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. No, that, that's, 
I think that's pretty compelling there. Um, all right, well, and again, you've mentioned it before uh, about the, the role of the police force, um, and, and some might certainly argue that, well, we don't need to have access to guns or as many guns or as lethal of guns because we do have a pretty robust, pretty uh, effective police force, uh, some might say. And obviously, the, you said before that that the state is not supposed to turn the other cheek, so this, you know, the state's been authorized to wield the sword. Um, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Like, what does the Bible say about that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the idea that, you know, leave it to the police officers is, is very is a very common perspective. And, you know, a few thoughts in response, you know, concerning a police force, you know, they can't give protection to every single citizen in every single circumstance. I mean, they're finite. You know, it, it, it takes time to get the call, respond to the call, arrive. You know, some of the best officers can arrive at a local scene in, you know, four to six minutes. That's time. You know, now it, it's and it's certainly true that the sword Military might, the means of violence to bring criminals and evildoers to justice, is given by God to the state. Christians are not vigilantes. Mm -hmm. And insofar as it's within our power, we're to work within the channels provided by God to bring evildoers to justice. But, now I, and I, I'd say something analogous about this situation with the police force as I would say about healthcare. So let's say you wake up in the middle of the night and you're sick. Or you, you find that someone is bleeding or someone needs CPR. I mean, yes, call 911. Yes, you know the ambulance is on its way. In the meantime, you have to stop mm -hmm. the bleeding. Yeah. You have to do CPR. Otherwise, if you don't, the person could be dead by the time the ambulance arrives. You know, a responsible adult is the first responder. Yeah. And I would say something very analogous about the police force. Now, if, if someone cites Romans 13 about the state and not individuals wielding swords... I would first point to all of the passages, you know, we've already looked at where citizens yeah. do wield weapons. You know, another common response that I think is only a little bit useful to the charge, well, individuals don't carry the sword, the state carries the sword. You know, I've heard some Christians respond to that by saying, look, yes, Romans 13 applies to the state, but in our national context in America, citizens are an extension of the state because we live in a democracy. So you know, maybe in other nations, citizens can't be armed, but here we're an extension of the state, so we can be armed. So hmm. that's a useful point, but there's, because there's some truth to it. The problem is, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a distinction to be drawn between the kinds of swords the state can wield and the kinds of swords that citizens can wield. Like, we don't want to lose that, that distinction. In other words, if you, if you trace that line of thinking out, you know, Christians can serve in the military, and in that capacity, we may wield weapons of war as agents of the state. You know, so nuclear bombs and bazookas and tanks and machine guns, you know, why can the state use higher-grade weapons, but private yeah. citizens may not? You see, like, if you remove the distinction between state and citizen, you can end up logically defending citizens using, you know, armored no, tanks. You know, maybe Elon Musk can get away with putting cyber trucks on the road, but you know, once cyber trucks start shooting not a flamethrower, you know, you, you've got a problem. Right? Yeah, I see that. That's, uh, no, that's fair. And I've never personally uh, heard that argument regarding um, uh, citizens being an extension of the state in a in a in a democratic society or, or whatnot. So um, that is interesting. To think about, but I, I do see that this kind of blur the lines. I don't know if it's particularly the most helpful um, point to be made there. So, all right. So, what would you say then regarding you know approaching? Let's say you know yeah we we can defend ourselves you know 
it's okay to have weapons, um, but how now do we discern what types of weapons we're allowed to use, you know, versus what the military or the police are allowed right. to use? How, how would we approach that? Yeah, and that's why the distinction between kind of state and citizen preserving yeah. that is is somewhat important. So, you know, I do think there is a distinction here between weapons of war from from weapons for civilian use. Like, yeah. you know, one way to distinguish the two is by how often you'd need to squeeze a trigger. So, so citizens can't own fully automatic guns like, you know, machine guns because mm -hmm. you just hold your trigger and the gun keeps shooting. You know, you contrast semi-automatic firearms, you know, the, mo the most popular being the AR-15. You don't have to cock it between bullets, and that's what makes it semi-automatic. But but the point here is it only fires one bullet each time you pull the trigger, right? It, it ejects the empty shell casing with this, with some of the energy from the gunpowder explosion and then loads a fresh round into the chamber. It, it limits the amount of targets you're able to fire at in succession. So, so guns that fire one bullet at a time, you know, you pull the trigger, are in one category, you know, multiple bullets are in another category. You know, so it, so one way of differentiating is the um, the scope of damage that can be exacted mm -hmm. there. You know, lethality. Lethality, exactly. You know, another way of distinguishing uh, between weapons is the common use test, and this was used by the Supreme Court in 2008 in the District of Columbia versus Heller case, and there the court said. You know, look, the, the issue isn't whether handguns are misused by criminals. We, we know they can be. The issue is, do handguns have a common traditional application by law-abiding people for traditional acceptable purposes, including self-defense? That's why you ban anthrax, but not a handgun, <laughs> right? Yeah. You look at the weapon and say, what does this do? And, like, is this something that people would expect to have available to them for common purposes? You know, do people already have an expectation to use this in legitimate ways? Handguns, yes. Anthrax, not so much. Tanks, not so much. Nukes, not so much. So, yes, like, the state limits fully automatic weapons, but the reason is they're not in need. They're not in common use to defend against a rapist or a robber. <laughs> you, you, it brought something, I mean, like a, a, just a really silly image to my mind. Like, I mean, it's serious but silly, like someone breaking into your home and, and they're threatening you and you just start throwing anthrax. <laughs> start throwing anthrax at them. <laughs> it would not be effective we, we could in never, that moment Yeah, we, we couldn't do it. It, it, it ought not be legal, right? It would be terrible. No, but um, t seriously, though, um, we do – it's important, though, that we do interpret the Constitution in the original context. And like you were saying, um, I was just thinking about a, a commercial I saw uh, a while back. I can't remember the exact context. It was a, a pro-gun control commercial. I think it involved – the scene involved a, a, a man was in a, a, an office building or in an office, and it was like, you know, you know, original Second Amendment was about muskets. And the guy was like drawing out his muzzleloader musket, whatever, mm. and was trying to do, you know, an active shooting in a in a you know, office. And it was silly because he got like one round off and it didn't hit anybody because it was so inaccurate. And then everyone else was like, they it was useless, right? And and the point of the commercial was like, yeah, we don't need. I mean, the Second Amendment back then had to do with with muskets, and it's so much more lethal now. It doesn't really apply. And I I think it's not really fair that that commercial. I understand what they're trying to say. I mean, in a sense, they were saying that it's outdated. Mm -hmm. That uh, everything has changed so much that that it's outdated. And and maybe that's an argument we can make. 
Uh, but if it's outdated, we have an avenue for changing it. That would be a constitutional amendment. Yeah. Um, so. You well, know, and I don't even know that that's a good argument. And but, it's not either, yeah. because I would say that yeah. uh, when you're trying to interpret any constitution or any, I mean, even any law, really, you take the principle and you apply it to the modern context, just like the parapets around the roof, like yeah. you said earlier from Deuteronomy, right? We don't have roofs with parapets anymore. So what's the principle there? Protecting life, boundaries, people falling things like that. Same thing applies, I would say, in how you read law from the founding fathers, and including the Second Amendment. So what is the uh, part, what is the common, the common principle there? Well, everyone recognizes that the Second Amendment speaks about having a well-ordered militia, and the, the common militia person at that time would have owned their own weapon. It would have been the commonly used uh, weapon for any man in warfare, the common infantry weapon, which was a musket. That is correct. And they would have probably pistols and swords or sabers or things like that. Um, and so what's the principle for today? The principle for today would be the commonly used uh, weapon for the average soldier, which today is a semi-automatic version of the M4, which is an AR-15 style weapon. Uh, and the most common variant of the of the military M4 has a three-round burst and semi-automatic. And some of them do have full automatic, but honestly, uh, even the military has shied away from fully automatic weapons because they're such a waste of ammunition, the temptation to just hold the trigger in a moment of fear and just and just use all of your ammunition is is very high. And then after the first couple of rounds, I mean the natural the natural recoil of the weapon causes the the barrel to rise and it becomes completely inaccurate. Yeah. Completely inaccurate. So it's almost it's almost fairly useless to have fully fully automatic weapons. I mean, there might be a, a reason for that in a military situation. Yeah. So that's why I think that an AR-15 style weapon with semi-automatic uh, style trigger is perfectly acceptable. It's the common man's weapon. And you mentioned a couple. Um, Articles earlier, and there was a very recent news news situation in Florida where an, a, a woman who was eight months pregnant hmm. uh, fended off two attackers, and she had an AR-15, and they were basically pistol whipping her husband and, hmm. and, and about ready to, to kill him. And I mean, you're talking about eight months pregnant woman. Yeah. I mean, AR-15 is a very uh, easily used weapon for a woman to defend herself against people who who might have pistols and whatnot. So yeah. at the end of the day, I would say that. When we look at the Constitution and the Second Amendment, um, that's why uh, uh, at the time of our founding, private individuals did not have their own cannons. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and this is why, you know, D.C. versus Heller was was such a landmark case, because for years, you Mm -hmm. know, many argued that the Second Amendment wasn't an individual right at all, but it was a right of the states. So the Second Mm -hmm. Amendment reads... Uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And those who argued that the Second Amendment was a collective rather than an individual right honed in on the words the people, the right of the people to keep Mm -hmm. and bear arms. But that argument didn't hold much water in large part because every other time the Bill of Rights speaks about the rights of the people, it has in view the rights of individuals. So the right to assemble in the Mm -hmm. First Amendment against unreasonable search in the Fourth Amendment, the the right to a speedy trial in the Sixth Amendment. Like none of these are rights of states, right? So, and if we look closer, like the first part of the Second Amendment is an opinion. 
Mm. You know, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. You know, to say a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state. I mean, I mean that, that's an opinion that could be wrong. Maybe what's needed for uh, the security of a free state is diplomacy or a standing or, or, army or, or, or whatever, yeah, or jobs, right? <laughs> and then next, you have the definite article, the right, right? And the definite article references something that exists even prior to 1791. And and indeed, you know, the right to bear arms in Anglo-American legal tradition had deep roots, and and the framers were preserving that right. You know, mm -hmm. the militia as it functioned in 1791, was composed of ordinary citizens, as you said, expected to come when duty called, carrying their own privately owned weapons. So without the right to bear arms, these people couldn't be militia. So now a malevolent government that wanted to prevent the people from acting as militia would disarm the people and take that option away from them. So the framers valued a militia. That does not mean the right has no other application. So it's common, for example, to hear some people say, well, we don't need a militia anymore, so that right is antiquated. Well, the problem with that reasoning is that the is that preamble purposes can't control the operative text. Like, just because the purpose expands doesn't make the right obsolete. For example, you know, Congress has the power to raise an army. Well, there was no Air Force at the time, and they didn't have airplanes. So, you know, do we conclude that because the scope of what it means to raise an army has changed, that new applications like, say, the Air Force are constitutionally illegitimate? Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. you know, another example, the First Amendment allows, allows you to, you know, freedom of religion. Does that mean freedom of religion only extends to religions that were around in 1791? We would yeah. say no, because the purpose of the right at the time of ratification can't control the right itself. But all that say, but there is a limiting principle, right, for for speech. There's a limiting principle. You have free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You have the right to bear arms, but you can't own a tank. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think kind of like a you know, tongue in cheek kind of point here. I do think we actually need a regulated militia. <laughs> I really you do. You would think that, like, brother. The townships <laughs> and the counties, because it would be helpful in times of disaster. I mean, it's not unreasonable. I mean, we have Civil Air Patrol, which is a volunteer organization that uh, can be incorporated under time of war. I mean, Civil Air Patrol during World War II was looking for uh, German submarines um, off of the coast of, uh, of the United States. And it's a civilian organization that can be brought under the arm of the military right. in, in need. And also the Boy Scouts, again, yeah. a voluntary organization that – has a connection to uh, uh, useful purposes in time of war, but it's fully voluntary, voluntary, and it's fully civilian run, right? So, right. I mean, and, and I like, think there's a reason, there's a, there's a place for that. And and part of why there could be, and there was certainly at the time, the framers knew how easy it was for states to go tyrannical. Like yeah. the the original context about the Second Amendment wasn't so much about hunting or self-defense, even though you know these are valid uses of firearms. It was primarily about protection from a tyrannical state. Like the framers of the Constitution situated our government with checks and balances, limited power, because while you know, few of the founding fathers were Christians, you know, many were deists, they still believed in sin, in the corrupt and fallen nature of human beings, and they didn't want power concentrated, including firepower. You know, it, it, it's hard for us to see the value in this, you know, today, since, you know, we live in an age where militias really, you know, aren't a thing anymore, despite Eric's uh, best intentions. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean they couldn't ever become a thing given drastic enough circumstances. But, you know, they haven't been a thing for 200 some odd years. And, you know, all of this gets tied back to the question about submission to authorities in Romans 13. Like, is there a place 
you know, if we say that part of the rationale for the right to own firearms is the ability to throw off a tyrannical state, should that time ever come, you know, is there a place for that when the state becomes beastly and tyrannical? And, you know, my answer would be yes, even given Romans 13, precisely because no one, not the king, you know, Caesar, not the state, not individuals, churches, families, businesses, no one is above the law of God. So absolutely, yeah. we're we to submit to our governing authorities up to the point where they command us to disobey God. And there's, there's basically three phases to, to this, right? Phase one mm -hmm. is basic civil mm -hmm. disobedience. Phase two is if it's in your power to flee, flee. And phase three is, you know, the big red button nobody wants to push, but is to is to fight, you know, only when all other options are exhausted. And, you know, to be honest, here in 2019, from a biblical perspective, like, in my mind, we are so far from this big red button that, you know, this line in the sand of, of violence being in any way justified, like, the Christian should never be excited. And it's also defensive in nature, by the way. It's exactly. The Christian should never be excited about any of this. Like, yeah, it'd be naive to think it couldn't happen. So if our state, if, you know, for example, were to begin putting people into concentration camps, and well, from some there, people think we do that already. Well, I know, but, but you <laughs> no, know, putting people into ovens, yeah. let's say because they're Jewish, then you know, one acceptable response could be to disown such a government as your government and to take up arms out of love for neighbor. Now, again, it'd be a whole separate episode to probe the ranges of yeah. scenarios where the you know the big red button yeah, we have is to acceptable. Talk about Bonhoeffer push. and how yeah, he did that exactly, yeah. but it's probably not the exercise for today. But no, in my no. view. Despite all the heated rhetoric, we're still so far away from anything like that becoming a reality. And that's just probably not going to be the challenge for our generation of Americans to sort out. Sure. But, you know, like, could a Christian really think it couldn't happen? Like, this ties back to anthropology, as we said earlier. Some of us say, you know, on the one hand, human nature is depraved. You know, that's a biblical truism. And on the other hand, oh, but, you know, the whole tyranny situation, that could, that could never happen here. Yeah. Like, yeah. really? Like, remember 1 Samuel 13, 19, you know. Tyranny disarms people. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 19 says, There was no blacksmith found in Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest they make for themselves swords or spears. Then verse 22, When it came to the day of battle, there weren't any swords or spears. And the common yeah. response to this is, you know, look, even if all that is true and the, I mean, look, the government has tanks and bazookas, you know, can some handguns really be effective against, you know, the government if that oh, were ever sure. to happen? Yeah, like, actually, the answer is yes. Like, I mean, I'm no military, ex you know, expert, you know, I, I would defer to you on this, Eric, but, you know, you can't put a tank or a bazooka on every citizen. So if your citizenry is armed, even with handguns, you can do amazing guerrilla damage to an opponent. But like, the real question isn't, how could people deal with you know, how could people with handguns fare against a standing army with military-grade weapons? That's not the question. The real question is, how do we prevent from getting there in the first place? And the way you do prevent it is by preparing ahead of time. If the Philistines thought the Hebrews had swords or spears, they would have been slower to attack. Yeah, and one could just point out that our, our act of guerrilla warfare against the British uh, during the American War for Independence against the world superpower was a, an example of militia, primarily militia, successfully fighting off that's right. a standing army yeah. of that power. So, so all right, so now yeah. that's where do we go from here? Because the point isn't just for people to own guns for ownership's sake, but to own guns, you know, 
for the good of our city and for the good of our republic to protect our families and neighbors in a sinful world and to protect order by limiting a state that could otherwise encroach beyond bounds set by God. And in the same breath, I would also, in, I also insist, like, with all that's to be said in favor of owning guns, we can't forget that violence is always only ever rough justice. Like, a last, 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 seven times seven last resort, <laughs> insofar as it's within our power to allow the state to execute violence against an evildoer, that's their job before it's ours. And, you know, God forbid, even in the case of an intruder, you know, the, the ideal, the ideal, I know it's not always possible, the ideal goal isn't to kill but to stop the violence, you know, if possible, to maim, to injure, to stop, not not to not to kill, especially if we know we're going to send the other person to hell, as as, as may be the case. Yeah, no, I I understand that. I do. I mean, it's always hard to, to do that sometimes. Yeah, that should it is. be the motivation. Should not be like, it should not be. I just looking for an excuse to hurt someone or looking for an excuse to uh, to kill someone. Um, and and obviously, you know, there are circumstances where yeah, in the middle of the night, you just got woken up by a bump in the in the night and uh, there's someone intruding in their home at that point like really I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't stress out too much about like I got to take I got to aim for the leg shot um, you know when you're in close quarters like that and uh, family's in danger um, and you're still uh, getting the sleep out of your eyes you just gotta you gotta aim for the biggest target you can um, and, and to make them you know to make sure that you don't you don't die I mean, uh, I think they say that in close range like that, usually a person with a knife can cover, you know, 15 to 20 feet in just a matter of seconds yeah, uh, if yeah. they really want to. So yeah. you basically get one shot. Mm -hmm. You get one shot to and, – and, and, and a lot of times, you know, people who are, who, are, who are attacking, they might be on drugs, and it's very hard to stop, uh, some, to stop someone yeah. who's on drugs like that yeah. who they can take a lot of punishment before they even stop. That's true. You know, so, that's true. Especially I, I in, the heat, of the, in get, the heat of a life-threatening moment. It's yeah. absolutely true. I mean, ideal if possible, but, you know, that you're right. Yeah. So in, in the last, I mean, we are, uh, time time slips us by, though, but, I mean, what what do you think then, okay, as, as Christians now, with all that said, how do we approach gun control? You know, what is the solution? I mean, I know that would be a, a, a long discussion in and of itself, but what are some general you know, principles we should have going forward about how do we manage as a society? Guns. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's common to hear the charge, you know, if, if you're against gun control, you know, when, when tragedy strikes, you want to just do nothing. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the irony is there's so many things we could do that God's word lays out that we as a society, you know, often refuse to do, but the things God's word doesn't <laughs> allow us to do that we want to do. Like we all want peace. There's no question there. Our goal is to pursue Shalom in a world that doesn't want shalom. And part of what that means, part of how peace is preserved, is by you know halting the state from interfering with the ability of citizens to defend themselves from people who don't want peace. Like, mm. you don't advance peace by letting those who don't want peace get their way. You don't advance peace by allowing Caesar to extend beyond his God-given reach. Um, so, so you know what mm -hmm. should be done realistically? Number one, preach the gospel. It, I mean. If Christ doesn't make us peacekeepers in our hearts, we won't have a peacekeeping society. And in the meantime, while we're working on religious renovation, 
we need the state to do what God calls it to do, which is to punish evildoers, because we believe in sin, you know, we believe in sin. At root, the problem isn't the tool, the, the firearm, but the problem is the, the, the person behind the firearm. If, if, on the other hand, you believe that people are basically good, you don't believe in sin. You know, it's just that it, it's just their environments, their socioeconomic statuses, their upbringing. It's just these external factors. They, mm -hmm. they didn't have a job. These things caused them to do bad things sometimes. You know, in that case, you'll be more likely to blame the tool rather than the person. You know, the person was just a victim of society. It's easy to blame other things or people. Right. It is. But God says that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, and he lays out in his word ways to deter violence in a society. So... In Ecclesiastes 8.11, we read, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Mm -hmm. So for a start, we ought to have swifter penalties for violent criminals. Oh, that's true. We, we, we have the seemingly endless appeal system. You know, another topic for <laughs> yeah, another that, day. Yeah, that, but that is important, though, <laughs> to keep in mind. But that's one measure we could take if, if you want to begin turning back violence, you know, punish evil quickly and strictly. Deterrence. Yeah, <laughs> some like some criminals just don't fear what the state will do to them. You know, we used to have the phrase, you know, three-time loser or three strikes and you're out. You know, violent offenders would be, you know, sometimes executed after the third offense because what can you do with a person who refuses to be subject to authority? Mm. You know, another angle to consider is is mental health. You know, we could benefit from a fresh approach to mental health issues. You know, in some parts of Philadelphia, it's not uncommon to see tents on the streets. And, you know, not all, but That's some. That's all drug stuff. Well, well, some suffer from drug abuse and some from yeah. mental health issues. You know, and, you know, one stat I heard cited is that, you know, in 1955, we had 500,000 patients in mental hospitals. You know, today, today the number is under 100,000. And it's not like we're 80% more sane, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. another angle is background checks. Now, now I know. Like, and that's a deep topic. It is. And, and how you go about doing that is controversial. But in general, I think most can agree that guns should be kept out of the hands of violent criminals and those convicted of, let's say, domestic violence, for example, or those known to be mentally ill and a danger to themselves and others. And part of the difficulty here, again, is integrating data. You know, someone could be judged mentally ill, but records might not get transmitted to the database behind the background checks. So there's gaps. There, you know, there's no silver bullet in background checks. Um, no pun intended. No, but, that's true. Yeah, but, but there are ways to progress. Yeah, or there are. There are. And background checks, I think... There is some use for them. Uh, we don't need, you know, dive into that too much. I mean, other things that are used as weapons, like cars and knives, we don't get really background checks for those. I mean, I see a, I see a place for them. Given the lethality. Uh, yeah. yeah, given lethality, I, I can see, I can see that, and it's of course very difficult. Um, maybe in some ways, the best, you know, the best way to keep the guns out of the hands of violent criminals is to make sure that the good guys have them too. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. I, I always think of. Um, uh, uh, if, if you remember, there's an old, not an old commercial, but it was, a, it was an old saying back when Samuel Colt, uh, back mm. in the 1800s, invented the, uh, I think it was the Colt 45. Huh. And it's like, the, the saying was that God created men and, and, and Sam Colt made men equal. Like his, his <laughs> Colt was the great equalizer yeah, yeah. between men. Hmm. And there's some sense of truth in that. And I mean, women. It, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And women, too. Yeah. That's true. Uh, you know. That's, there's one thing to be said about that. We don't necessarily have time to dive into it, but like guns, uh, giving women an ability to defend yes. themselves that they never had before. Yeah, yeah. You know. So anyways. well now, and when it comes to stemming violence in society, you know, one thing we have good reason to believe doesn't work or has little measurable effect is decreasing the gun supply. You know, we, we have good evidence to suggest that an increase in the number of guns does not lead to a correlated increase in crime. So, you know, gun supplies have increased massively by over 100 million in the last 20 to 25 years. But at the same time, gun crime has declined 
drastically. So again, the issue isn't the guns, but you know whose hands the guns are in. You know, there's also been fewer gun-related accidents. You know, we saw a peak year for gun accidents per capita, I think, in 1973, and since then, gun accidents have decreased by about 90 percent. While you know, at the same time, we've almost tripled the national gun supply. So you know, probably it's just better safety training. We also have good evidence to suggest that guns do work as deterrents against evildoers. You know, for example. Uh, the National Institute of Justice surveyed incarcerated adult felons in prisons in the 1980s, and they looked at the inmates' attitudes towards guns, you know, how they got the guns and how they used them, etc. And one of the questions was, have you ever personally decided not to commit a crime because you were afraid the victim was armed? Hmm. And 42% answered yes. So, like, the biggest, you know, occupational hazard to a robber is is an armed citizen. That's true. You think about, like, in England, okay, uh, robbers want citizens to be home because wallets and purses are home. And, and England has very strict gun laws. You know, very few citizens are, arms, are armed. And, and we know that, you know, correlation isn't causation, but there's a very high burglary rate in England uh, while occupants are still in the home. You know, by contrast, in the United States— a quarter or fewer of home burglaries are against occupied residents. You know, robbers do stakeouts and wait for the homeowners to leave, in large part, so the, you know, the survey found, because the risk of meeting an armed homeowner was, was you know, less if they waited till they left. Yeah, and that, that, apply, that same principle can apply on the national level. I mean, I mean, I know that we're not talking about nuclear weapons here, but there is a sense of deterrence in, in the military. I mean... Um, you know, just looking at even in history, I mean, you know, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, other countries that were that were more aggressive and more violent, they were they were encouraged to do so by the lack of support, pre- lack of preparation and resistance by, let's say, the Allied powers and whatnot. So, I mean, when a person who's bent on violence sees that no one else is ready to stand up against them, they're encouraged. To in that regard, to do evil, because there's no restraint upon them, you know, and that so that happens at, from the individual level all the way up to the uh, national level. Exactly. I so, I, in wrapping up, I know we're low on time. I'll offer yeah. just two quick yeah, what takeaways. Yeah, two big takeaways. Yeah. Number one, the ultimate solution is Christ. I mean, I cannot say that strongly enough, and I know it sounds cliche, but the true, like true story, only the King of Peace can bring peace to our dark, violent hearts. So, mm. evangelize. Uh, you know, the goal in all of this, even for those of us who defend the rights of gun ownership, the goal is still peace, you know, quiet living, gospel proclamation, Christ's kingship proclaimed, not trusting in firearms, but in Christ alone who sets us free. Hmm. The firearm is a reflection of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And one day, King Jesus will return and our guns will one day be beat into plowshares. And we pray that he would haste that day. And number Mm -hmm. two... Christians have a right in very restricted circumstances to use violence in self-defense or defense of others. Though, you know, with self-defense, as we saw, when one's own life, for the gospel's sake, is what's at stake, all else being equal, probably better to lay down one's own life than to kill, if indeed you're ready to meet your maker. Even in self-defense, so, you know, Jesus said, Luke 21, 12 to 19, they will lay their hands on you persecute you have you brought to prisons for my sake some of you they will put to death but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives so we do have the right but use it cautiously sparingly soberly yeah yeah no i i think that's a that's a good word uh dylan i think you did a really good job 
of, of bringing some clarity to this, laying out some of the key points here. Um, and even though there's obviously, you know, other avenues that uh, this topic touches on that we could hit on, uh, such as, uh, uh, you know, the government aspects of, you know, civil disobedience and political resistance theory and, and all, all things like that. Um, I, I do think that this is, uh, this lays out some useful principles there for as Christians, we should be going to, to think on these things as we go about, um, as we go about uh, our lives there. And so, and I would also say, I mean, show some grace to each other, you know, so, Amen. You, you know, if, the, if there is a Christian brother or sister that has a concealed carry permit, I mean, you shouldn't be, as a Christian, you shouldn't be like scared to be around that person, you know, as if they're going to hurt you at any moment, right? You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look down upon them. And then as, on the other side, like if you carry a weapon and you're with Christians that are, are very much against it, uh, you know, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look down upon them. I wouldn't like make fun of them or, yeah. or be rude to them or anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, like show some grace to each other as long as both are trying to seek, you know, loving God and loving one's neighbor. Amen. So that's a good word. Yeah. So um, again, uh, thank you, Dylan, for leading that discussion. Um, and thank you all for listening this this day about this topic. Uh, it's a very weighty topic. And if you have other questions or related uh, uh, topics that you want us to cover, by all means, please go to our website, uh, twoguysinthebible.org, and there's a, there's a place that you can submit questions there that come uh, directly to us. You can also just you know, pull up your email and email us at twoguysinthebible.podcast at gmail.com. And uh, we always want more questions, uh, theological, cultural uh, questions that we can tackle. Um, and we hope that this has been uh, a good topic for, for you guys to listen to and, and a blessing for you as well. So, um, you know, with that, until, until next time, uh, God bless. God bless. God bless.